0: Hi, I'm Peter Adamson, and you're listening to the History of Philosophy podcast, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode will be an interview with Martin Picave who is Professor of Philosophy and Medieval Studies at the University of Toronto, and we're going to be talking about one of his particular areas of interest in his research, Henry of Ghent. Hi Martin, thanks for coming on. Hi Peter, thanks for having me here. Henry of Ghent is known to specialists of medieval philosophy, at least for several things, and I think probably the thing he's most known for is that he's an early example of voluntarism. And... I thought maybe we could start there. Can you say a little bit about what you understand by the term voluntarism and why we might think that Henry is an example of a voluntarist? Yes, uh, the
1: term voluntarism is often used in two ways. In the first way, it means someone who thinks that, uh, in one way or another, the will is um, what makes us... Properly human is kind of the, the highest human faculty. And if that's the um, idea of voluntarism, then I think it's fairly clear that Henry of Ghent, like uh, many others, is a voluntarist because he uh, repeatedly says that the will is the the highest power of the human soul. Um, it's higher than the intellect, for example. And uh, yeah, I think that's a clear cut case. There's another use of the term voluntarism, and there it is opposed to. Um, indicate that uh, voluntarists have a specific view about human freedom. And there it's a bit uh, more difficult to see uh, what voluntarism would actually mean. Um, I take it that in this respect, voluntarism is often used as a term that is supposed to equal the term libertarianism, i.e. the idea that freedom requires... um, indeterminacy, uh, that uh, if everything in the world is causally determined, um, there wouldn't be any freedom. And in this sense, uh, I think the term voluntarism is sort of misleading because there are a lot of philosophers in the medieval period uh, who are, in this sense, libertarians. Either they don't think that our actions are causally determined or they like, can't be causally determined, otherwise there wouldn't be anything like merit and praise
0: and blame. But it's less clear that Henry is a voluntarist in, in that sense. In fact, I guess some people who are we would call intellectualists are libertarians, in the sense you just described. Aquinas, yes, for yeah. example, is, is sort of the example of an intellectualist that people always mention, but he doesn't think that free choice is compatible with being causally determined, does he? Absolutely, I agree with you. Okay. Um, now, this view you've just described under the heading of libertarianism, the second sense of volunteerism is one that I associate with Duns Scotus, who I'll be covering soon in the podcast and is going to be coming up a lot over the episodes to come. Now, Scotus does think that free will presupposes the presence of alternative possibilities. And this, I think, is very plausible to us. I mean, if I imagine that I'm choosing freely, then it seems that I'm almost forced to imagine that I'm choosing between several alternatives, right? I might be choosing something as trivial as which flavor of ice cream to order, or something as important as what career to pursue. But the thought would be that if there isn't more than one thing I can do, then I'm not choosing freely, even if it's only shall I do this or not. So I had at least two alternatives, either do it or not. So how can Henry be such a staunch supporter of voluntarism in general, in this first sense, and the free will in general if he isn't following this idea that there have to be alternative possibilities?
1: Yeah, so the idea that freedom involves a power to do otherwise, a robust power to do otherwise, is interestingly, uh, strikingly absent from many authors before uh, SCOTUS. I mean, I think you covered uh, Anselm of Canterbury in uh, one of your previous episodes, and um, there, uh, when Anselm discusses the nature of freedom. um, He he talks about the power to sin, uh, not to sin, and he thinks that freedom is um, not the power to sin or not to sin. It's um, how to preserve the rectitude of the world for the sake of rectitude. Um, So even even in this very early... um, Accounts of uh, freedom, uh, you find the powdered otherwise interestingly uh, absent. And the same is true for the late 13th century, uh, for the period of Henry of Ghent. Henry does not think that a human freedom consists in having a powdered otherwise, um, or that freedom in general consists in a powdered otherwise. And he has various reasons for that. And some of them are theological, some of them are more philosophical. So there are a couple of theological reasons why he thinks that freedom cannot consist in a powdered otherwise. Maybe the most obscure is has to do with the trinity, namely that there is this idea that uh, the production of the Holy Spirit from the Father is a, is both necessary and a free act. Um, uh, it's necessary of course because the Trinity there is there are ne- necessarily tr- three uh, persons but it's supposed to, also supposed to be a free act. So here we get something that is both free and necessary. There is no God couldn't have just chosen not to um, <laughs> uh, generate the, the Holy Spirit. That's as I said the most obscure uh, case maybe um, but there are others that are less obscure cure Uh, so in the order of um, obscurity the second one uh, would be the following uh, scenario there's this idea among uh, theologians in that period that uh, at the end of the day um, the blessed see god face to face Um, and of course this is supposed to be the ultimate Act of human happiness. It's hard to imagine this is an unfree act. So it's supposed to be a free act. We see God face to face, and we love God in in, in this um, in this instance. But again, there's no way um, the agent could decide. Oh well, I'm not going to do this. I want to rather watch television. Or so you're
0: so, the divine essence, and you think, ah, nah,
1: yeah, that's, that's not for me. That's impossible. Yeah. <laughs> so again, there's a scenario of of an of an act that is both. Um, free but uh, it doesn't involve a power to do otherwise but we can also make this idea i think plausible to us if we think um just in general um about freedom and i think everyone would agree that um freedom is kind of a perfection it is something that um we all find a, a good thing it's a per- that's why i said it's a perfection now is a power to do otherwise in the light in in light of um seeing or thinking about something as, 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 as good um, to pursue uh, would it be a perfection to have a power not to follow the command of reason um, I think this is maybe the, the yeah, uh, a philosophical reason why Henry thinks that alternative possibilities uh, is not part of the essence of freedom but I should modify this because um, Henry actually makes a distinction he makes a distinction between freedom uh, libertas and liberum arbitrium so Henry thinks that um, the proponents in his time more uh, imaginative proponents of um, the idea that freedom involves a power to otherwise have a point but what they should rather say is that we have um, a part otherwise only with respect to means towards an end uh, e uh, when I when I think about what I ought to make for dinner tonight and so in this sense I have a robust power to otherwise um, but I don't have a power that otherwise. Um, in, in some other aspects, and some other respects. And uh, freedom ultimately does not uh, involve
0: a part of voice. Okay, well, it, so if he rejects this notion that freedom is the power to do otherwise, does he replace it or uh, challenge it with a different positive account of what freedom is? Uh, yeah, so that's in a way the the,
1: the trouble um, these voluntarists are all in. They have to explain two things. They have to explain in what sense um, the, the will is free, and then they have to explain uh, also how it follows from this that we have a part of otherwise with respect to some uh, objects of or some actions, i.e., for example, um, actions that are um, directed at means towards an end. Henry ultimately thinks that to act freely is just to be able to act with pleasure and in a quasi choosing way. Quasi illegibilita is is his uh, term there. So it's very hard to understand uh, what that's supposed to mean. And uh, authors writing after Henry and and, uh, taking issue with Henry's view have a hard time to kind of spell this out. But I think the easiest way to think about this is uh, that he tries to grapple with um, a notion of spontaneity. He he thinks that uh, free agents are agents that bring about their actions in a spontaneous way and i think that's captured in this phrase uh, uh, quasi illegibilita, because of course in, in election in or in choice this is one way of exercising this spontaneity but there's a there's uh, there's a more fundamental uh, one that uh, to which he only gives the circumscription i.e. quasi choosing
0: um. That sounds to me like the notion that the agent is just moving him or herself. Is that the idea? I mean, this is all about the will, presumably, so hence voluntarism, right? Uh, will is voluntas in Latin. Is the idea then that the will is a power for self-motion and that that's what makes us free? Uh, exactly, so Henry
1: um, Henry's account of freedom is underpinned by a, an attempt to explain how the will is a self-mover. Um,
0: Okay, but then, uh, the reason I asked is that this, to me, is a potential worry, because if we know our Aristotle, which Henry certainly did, probably better than either you or I do even, Mm -hmm. um, even though we both have read our fair share of Aristotle, uh, there's a refutation of the notion of self-motion in Aristotle, which basically says to oversimplify that if you have a case of something that looks like self-motion actually you can always analyze it into one aspect that's doing the moving and another aspect that's doing the being moved there's an active part and a passive part hence if Henry really wants us to believe that the will is a power for self-motion it looks like he has to somehow reject Aristotle's proof that self-motion is impossible
1: Yes, uh, so Henry knows about this objection. It's actually an objection that has been raised to him uh, uh, by his contemporaries, uh, among uh, others, by uh, Godfrey Fontaine, who is kind of one of the main rivals of Henry in the late uh, 1280s. And Henry um, gives a very verbose reply, as he often does, um, to this uh, problem. Uh, and uh, basically the solution gives us to say, well, yes, um, the act potency axiom that you just referred to is uh, applies uh, and it it entails that everything that is um, moving itself is is divided into parts um, but uh, it does not apply um, in the same sense to immaterial things like the will um, but still henry um, in one way, uh, you might say Henry just restricts the Aristotelian uh, uh, thought to material objects. Uh, but in another way, kind of, he goes along with it, and he says, "Well, yes. So even in the will, we can make a distinction between uh, the the moving." Uh, Aspect of the will and uh, the will is a, a, is a moved thing. So, this is just an intentional distinction. That's uh, kind of one of um, his inventions that he also applies to other things. He thinks there's not a real distinction between the will as a mover and the will as moved, uh, but there are these two aspects in the will, which is a simple psychological power.
0: Okay, uh, is he presenting that as an explanation of what Aristotle really meant, or is he presenting that as a correction to Aristotle's argument? As a correction to Aristotle. Oh, okay, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. Actually, I have to say I find that pretty convincing. In particular, because in the medieval period and already in late antiquity, you very often have the idea that immaterial things are capable of grasping themselves, cognitively, or maybe knowing themselves or being aware of themselves. Mm in a way that bodies wouldn't be capable of so this kind of self-reversion as late antique platonists put it or self-awareness is something I actually i had another interview about with Terry's corey a few episodes back so insofar as there's a kind of parallel between the act of self-grasping or self-awareness and the act of self-moving i think actually henry's on pretty solid ground there
1: yeah And he also quotes um, ancient sources. Uh, Remember well, um, one of the key Latin texts, at least, for the Platonic idea of um, self-motion is um, Macrobius' commentary on the Somnium Scipionis, where uh, you get kind of a criticism of the. Aristotelian, quotation mark, prohibition of self-motion.
0: Okay. I think, though, that there's another possible objection that one could bring against him if he really means by freedom spontaneity. And this is a kind of objection that you often hear in contemporary uh, debates about free will that's directed against modern-day libertarians, which is that since the libertarian is denying that pre-existing desires, beliefs, attitudes, and so on, will necessarily give rise to an action or a choice it must be that the action or choice is to some extent random because there's all your attitudes and beliefs and desires and then on the basis of that you still have to make a further decision and you can still choose either way so your choices and are not somehow uh, fully grounded in the beliefs and desires that you find yourself with rather there's this extra thing and the extra thing really, by definition, has to be something that you're not making just because of some belief or desire, because the belief or desire doesn't cause it to happen. So why wouldn't the choice ultimately just be a kind of random or arbitrary act, rather than something that's grounded in the reasons we have for doing things? Yeah, so uh, Henry's account of
1: how the will moves itself to action. um, of course, does not uh, entail that we don't act on account of reasons. Um, he uh, is f- fairly um, on board with this idea. Uh, it would be crazy to reject that because human beings, it's, it's part of our human nature that we we think about what what we ought to do, and then we act on the reasons which with which we come up. So he definitely doesn't want to destroy that connection. But of course, as you rightly point out, he has a problem if you don't make action and volition kind of the effect of reasons and beliefs and, and desires, um, then uh, you seem to have a, a kind of disconnect, a, a, a problematic disconnect. So Henry um, has a complicated theory about in what way reasons contribute to uh, to action um, and to the forming of volitions. Um, and the key idea here is that reasons and everything that comes from the intellect is basically provides a causa sine qua non, so a necessary cause for action. The idea is um, that um, reasons or co- cognition or anything um, on the cognitive side of the soul doesn't kind of um, impress itself on the will and make the will uh, move in a certain way, but it's kind of provides a, a condition under which the will can pick this or pick that uh, uh, or move itself um, to action the notion of causes in or necessary cause is very uh vague um let me give you an example how to think about this he's not the only one who uses this uh, notion in this spirit um the idea is uh, for example this imagine you have a Pot of water on a on a hot stove. Um, now the you might think about the action of the of the activity of the hot stove in two ways. So first, there's an activity the stove is hot, um, but there's also a, a second kind of activity that's related to the heat of the stove. That is, is it is heating. So the stove couldn't heat if there isn't anything around that is heatable, like the like the water in the stove. In the same way, uh, he thinks about um, Volitions um, and the connection between volitions and and reasons. So, of course, I can only pick the, the pizza in the uh, the shop over the um, mac and cheese uh, if I have a thought uh, of about uh, the one or the other. Um, but it's not that the thought itself makes the will or causes the will to choose um, uh, the one or the other in any robust sense of causing. It's just there, provides an occasion for the will uh, to choose uh, one or the other.
0: Does that just boil down to what modern day philosophers uh, mean when they talk about the difference between necessary and sufficient conditions? The belief that macaroni and cheese tastes good is a necessary condition for choosing to eat it but exactly. it's not a sufficient yeah. condition. Yes, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That sounds like a pretty good answer, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Um and I suppose that that connects to what we were talking about at the very beginning, which is that he's called a voluntarist. Yeah. You mentioned that he thinks that the will is the highest power of the soul and it's not immediately clear what highest means there, but I suppose that at least part of what it means is that the lower powers, in this case the intellect, can only kind of create the conditions for the will to engage itself in a certain way and move itself as we were just talking about but the lower powers can't necessitate it and they also aren't sufficient uh reasons or or or, and what that means is that just judging that macaroni and cheese is delicious would never be enough to make you choose it
1: Yes, absolutely. So in this sense, we could say, yeah, Henry's a voluntarist because he thinks that, there, that the will has a certain form of uh, command or mastery that cannot be, um, it cannot be pushed around by, by uh, reasons so or desires or beliefs. Yeah. Okay.
0: Well, does that really boil down to the thought that the will can trump reason or override it? I mean, uh, let's imagine a case where um, you have very, very good reasons for doing something and you just decide, well, I'm not going to do this anyway, that I sort of willfully uh, reject the very good reasons that I have for doing it, and kind of perversely decide not to do it, is that the kind of thing that convinces him that the will is superior to the intellect?
1: Uh, y- yes, uh, definitely thinks that we can, the will can control uh, thought and can override um, thought. But um, in my view... Um, when he talks about how the will can go against uh, reasons, um, these texts are interestingly um, underdeveloped, I think, um, because um, if you take on one side serious what he says, that the will needs uh, reason um, to act, namely as a necessary cause, not as a sufficient cause, that that seems to entail that it is impossible for the will to act against against any reason. So that there has to be, even for the, uh, even if the, let's say, imagine reason tells you, uh, you should really um, do action x, y, z. And so in order for the world then to gen- go against this, uh, the, the world seems to have to have a, a, an- another reason. I um, see. Um, That's that why
0: you uh, gave us the example of choosing between two different things for dinner. So yes, the idea yes. is I have reasons to choose both yeah but then it somehow remains up to the will to decide which reasons it will find more compelling on this occasion yeah it seems to me like something an intellectualist could say here though is that when you're choosing between two things actually what you're doing is choosing between two reasons and in fact what must happen is that you find one reason more compelling than another and the key word here would be compelling the intellect judges that actually my reasons for doing one thing so eating macaroni and cheese on this occasion are more compelling than my reasons for eating something else on this occasion. Hence, the voluntarists are wrong because in the end, even though it's true that you have different reasons for doing different things and that you choose one rather than the other, what makes the difference in choosing isn't some kind of self-motion of the will. It's rather which reasons turn out to be found most compelling.
1: Yes, so I think... I mean, obviously, Henry thinks the the will can um, go against what appears the the, the stronger reason, uh, so can um, direct itself towards something that appears at first as uh, the least, um, uh, the, the lesser uh, option, but. I think to understand how the will can go against reason in this case, in order to understand that, it's important to to keep in mind that um, we should not think about uh, reasons for acting acting in a atomistic sense that they are the situations where we just they're just these two reasons. Uh, we should think about them as connected with a whole of a bunch of other things around them. Um, that, for example, when I uh, wonder whether I should go to church uh, on the weekend or or, or whatnot, um, there are a whole other things um, that things I might find uh, that they're pleasant and good for for other reasons um, um, that are the vicinity that uh, on which I not focus when I think oh that this one thing is. Uh, it's, it's it's reasonable to, to 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 choose this, and because they're the all these other things in the vicinity, and um, their descriptions under which they're they're good, they um, even descriptions under which they're better than the uh, the thing that appears to me first as the uh, obvious best choice. Uh, maybe because they may may be more pleasurable, full, uh or, so, or they're more pleasurable in sense of providing more sensory pleasure uh, uh, and, and so on. Um, the will can move towards these things and of course by moving, by endorsing something else, um, the will will emphasize the aspect under which the other thing is uh, the the most uh, choice worthy.
0: I see. So the, the reason the will is the top dog, so to speak is that it actually decides which Messages from the intellect to, to, to pay most attention to, and thus to find more compelling on this occasion. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, okay, and this is I mean
1: this is a uh, uh, the, the model here is less worked out in Henry of Ghent. I think it's more worked out in in, in Scotus, who um, who actually has a very sophisticated theory of how the w- how the will can direct itself. He thinks about the um, the the area of reasons in the same way as we think with the visual field i mean i can um, if i look at your books uh, right now i look at one book uh, i can move my my gaze um, because there are all these other things in my visual field and he thinks in the same way when when um, the intellect um, thinks about what we ought to do um, there's not just one thing uh, we the intellect focuses when I mean, there's one thing the intellect focuses on but there are all these other things in in the thinking sphere,
0: so to say, to which they work and then direct itself. Okay. Actually, it's interesting that you mentioned Scotus there, because I wanted to end anyway by asking you about their relative influence later on. They're both well known for being voluntarists. Scotus is a more famous name in general. And I know that Henry is, in general, actually a very influential figure in the 14th century. He's a, a scholastic philosopher to whom later scholastics constantly refer. I think even more than they refer to Aquinas, for example. And so back then he was a name to conjure with in a way that he isn't now. But to what extent is he perceived as the key thinker in voluntarism by later voluntarists? Do they think that once Scotus comes along, it's clear that Scotus has made a big jump forward in terms of how to present a voluntarist theory of the will? Or do they go back to Henry?
1: Yeah, that's quite interesting. Um, so the modern historiography of philosophy, of medieval philosophy, um, okay. always thinks that kind of SCOTUS um, overcame all these problems of the previous uh, generations and is the Voluntarist per Excellence that then kind of develops some modern or more modern understanding of uh, freedom and contingency. But in the medieval period, that was definitely not the case. So people after SCOTUS um, had terrible problems to understand. the idea that freedom was a part of it otherwise. otherwise, um, for the various reasons I mentioned earlier in the interview, uh, for these theological reasons. Um, so there are a lot of people uh, after Scotus in the early fourteenth century who kind of try to defend a more Henrician uh, version, i.e., try to understand what, um, how we could understand freedom as a ability to act uh, with pleasure and in a quasi quasi choosing way. Um, so he's uh, by no way way um, in the in the view of the uh, people in the early 14th century, kind of superseded by I'm
0: yeah. yeah. uh, well, glad you answered that question because, among other things, we've just learned the new word, Henritzian, which is oh. officially my new favorite word. Uh, <laughs> things that Henry of Ghent might say, or, or yeah. Yeah. And, in fact, uh, next time I'm going to still be in the realm of the Henritzian because I'm going to be looking at the views that Henry of Ghent and other scholastics of the late 13th century put forward on this question of the trendy, which came up a couple of times in this interview. For now, I'll thank Martin Picave very much for coming On the podcast. Thanks for having me. And please join me next time to find out what might be philosophically interesting about theological debates over the Trinity at the end of the 13th century here on the History of Philosophy without any gaps.